if you would, please uh, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. I started to say Gideon chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, where we're going to learn more about Gideon. Um, so jumping right in, where we left off last week was um, we had to spend some time on what was a little bit of a detour from the main topic, the main uh, storyline that is these few chapters. We had to step away from the story about Gideon delivering the Israelites from the Midianite oppression in order to deal with something. We had to deal with the idolatry of Gideon and, and of, his, um, of his community. And so we, now what's happening in verse 33 is where we're going to pick up. We're snapping back into uh, the, the main story. And, and we'll have to detour again. Um, but that's what happens. And it sets the stage. Those few verses there are setting the stage for the battle that is to come. The, the battle of Gideon and his men. And so there are some major troop movements, if you will, that are going on. The Midianites have... Uh, joined with a few other tribes, and they have crossed the Jordan, um, and they are moving essentially closer um, to the Israelites. And so what Gideon does, now that he has been called by God to be the leader, um, he calls together as many men as he can. So he reaches out to various tribes and says, let's, let's go, let's, for, for once we are going to counter this movement. We're going to meet them and so he sends them out, and that brings up kind of an important question because it works. People do come. Men do come. He is able to form uh, an army. Because the, and the text reads kind of nonchalant about the fact, well, of course, he called, Gideon called, a bunch of people showed up. Um, but it wasn't very long ago that we were talking about Gideon being the weakest of the weak. Uh, we were talking about a group of people that wanted to drag him out of his house and have him executed he was a nobody. And so why was he able to rally these thousands around him? He's not some great and respected leader. But it's because of a very short clause at the beginning of verse 34. It says, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. So the question is, did, had Gideon changed? No. No, you look, you look at both sides of, of that couple of verses there. You look at both sides. On one side, he's lacking in faith. On the other side, as we're going to talk about here in, a, here in a second, he's lacking in faith, right? And both sides, he's challenging God. He's not believing him. He, after all the signs, he still doesn't believe that God is with him. And so, so the only thing that works in his favor here is that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. Other, other passages use that phrase, rushed on him. You could say clothed him, like it says here, possessed him. The Spirit of the Lord works in him, and in some way, makes him able to rally the troops. Uh, one, one author describes this moment and makes it clear that it is not Gideon's ability that, that is accomplishing this. He says, this expression, meaning that expression of the spirit rushing or clothing him, does not presuppose any particular level of spirituality on the part of the recipient. To the contrary, this divine intrusion into human experience seems to graphically describe Yahweh's arresting of men ill-disposed toward resolving Israel's problems and his equipping of them for the saving task. It's a, a long way to say um, that the pattern is continuing. God is using people that are unexpected for the task so that he gets the glory, so that they know 
who it is and that we're not reading this as if we're reading about the heroics of Gideon. And that, that is going to be proven as we move on to verses 36 through 40. And here we are, we, we take another, another detour from, um, from the story. Understand that the story of, of Gideon uh, leading the people and, and leading this uh, battle against the opposition would be a lot shorter if we didn't have to stop and keep dealing with the lack of his faith or the, lack, or, or, or the idolatry that's happening within the Israelite camp, and yet it is, and so we do have to deal with that. So Gideon gets bold um, yet again, but in the wrong way. He tells God that he needs another sign. So at this point, he has been visited by God. He's been shown a miraculous sign. Um, he is, he's been spared from an angry and violent mob. He's, he's now surrounded by what we, what we guess to be at least 32,000 men that he had rallied around for this battle. And yet, he's still not ready. He's still not convinced. He wants to see more. And so he demands more signs from God. And he's even bold enough to demand the, the nature of the sign. He says, I'm going to put this fleece out. And in the morning, if it is wet and the ground around it is dry, then I will, I will believe you. I will know that you're going to do uh, what you said you're going to do. And he does it. And in the morning, they pick up the fleece. The, dry, the ground around it is dry. They pick it up. And not only is the dew on it, but it is so wet that they can fill a bowl of water with, with what they wrung out from the fleece. So why that, why that detail? Why, why do we need to know how much water was there? It's so that the skeptic who, who reads this doesn't say, well, that's open to interpretation. What is, you know, how do you define wet? No, it was clear. This thing was soaked to the core. It had, he had clearly, miraculously uh, worked on this fleece to make this sign to Gideon. So that should be that should be it, right? Gideon's ready to go. He's still not ready to go. He still doesn't want to do it. And so he changes the rules. And he says, don't be mad at me, but let's do it again. Just so, and he, and he keeps telling himself, and he's telling God, I'm doing this so that I know that it's your will. That's, that's what he's telling to himself, right? That's what makes him feel okay, that he's, he's just trying to do God's will. Let's flip it this time. I want the fleece to be dry. I want the ground to be wet. And what happens? That. Exactly that. God obliges him, is patient with him, and it happens. And so a couple of things about that, uh, that, that detour, this dealing with his lack of faith. Um, there's an argument to be made that Gideon really was just trying to determine God's will, that this was not a lack of faith issue, that he was, he, he just wanted to be really sure. He wanted to make sure it wasn't what he wanted. Um, I Honestly, I don't believe that, and I think that's a hard sell. I think what's happening was he's trying to get out of it. Gideon is trying to get out of his responsibilities, and he exposes himself twice. In verses 36 and 37, he, he uses that phrase, as you have said, right, in reference to him being the one to deliver Israel. He already knows what God's will is. He's heard it from his very voice and he's seen miracles to confirm. Here's what he's, here's what he's doing. If, you have, if you've got two siblings, right, and, they are, um, and they're fighting over who has to do the worst chore, right? If they're having to do chores, there's always the one that no one wants to do. And they decide to play rock, paper, scissors. 
The losing sibling has to do the bad chore, okay? So they play it, and the losing sibling loses. What's the next thing that kid says? Two out of three, right? Two out of three. That, that's what I meant from the beginning. And three out of five and on and on and on, right? And Gideon is in the on and on and on phrase. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, okay, he's proving. I just don't want to do it. This is, this is not about figuring that out. He just doesn't want to do it. But he's got two more signs. He's stuck. He, he has to press forward. It's not sunk in. It's not, it's not in his heart. That faith is not quite there yet. Um, but he has to press forward. And so we... Again, we snap back to the main story. And there are about 32,000 men, and they're camped with Gideon. They camp across from the Midianites. Uh, they, they, they're by a spring, obviously, for the purposes of, of having resources and being able to um, have water. Ironically, uh, the spring is called the Spring of Herod, which that, that name can actually mean trembling. Um, whether Gideon is trembling or not, we're about to find out most of his men are. So it's a little bit of an ironic place for them to be. And I love the conversation that God has with Gideon here. And I always try to think about what would it be like if I were there just having this, this conversation. So, so God says, paraphrase, God says we have too many men here. We need to send some home. And, and I can just, for some reason, I can just picture Gideon being like, you know what, you're right, we do need more men. Wait, what did you say? You want me to send some home? That, that, that doesn't make sense to Gideon. And the reason, right, he tells us, tells us the reason why. So he, they, they go out and um, he say, listen, if you're too afraid to be here, if you, are, if you are worried and you don't want to be here, you're afraid, you can go home. And in that moment, you know Gideon is like, please let it be like five guys. <laughs> please let it just be a couple. It is not five guys. It is almost two-thirds, or excuse me, it is more than two-thirds of his people go and take off. Of the 32,000, 22,000 guys leave, right? They all start to see one guy leave, and they're like, oh, it's okay for me to go, and they just, they peel off, and they're gone. And that tells us, that gives us a little bit of a hint into what the Midianites must have looked like to them. Because you're thinking, in a crowd of 32,000 soldiers ready to go to battle, you're probably going to feel confident, Right, you're going to feel good about who you're with and who you're. Who, that tells you that the Midianite army must have looked way more impressive than 32,000 guys. Right, that they must have looked way scarier than that. So keep that in mind as we as we tell the rest of the story. That fact becomes um, uh, fairly fairly important and telling of why people what the, what they must have been feeling as we move on. So, why does God send home a massive? portion of his people and he's not done he'll do more but he does tell us first he says the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel might boast over me saying my own hand has saved me okay it's what we talked about last week he wants all of the glory and he knows that if they win with 32,000 they might think that they were the ones who had done it and they might forget that it was God who had delivered them so he he sins a big portion away, and then the Lord says that there are still too many. And this time he uses a, a different method, a different mean to tell who, who should stay and who should go. Uh, he determines that they're going to observe the men as they drink the water, and they're going to separate them by how they drink their water. So some of the guys would go and they would take their hand and they would scoop the water up into their mouth and that's how they would drink. 
um, others would go and stick their faces down in the water and, and lap it up, essentially like a, like a dog would to a bowl. And things like this, really random things like this, always pique my curiosity um, when I'm reading Scripture. I want to I know, like, what, why that? That is a really bizarre way to decide who's going to stay and who's going to go. And so I started reading, reading different commentaries and what different guys thought. And there are, there are some theories. Um, some thought it had to do with, with honor to some degree, that um, if you were using your hand, you were keeping yourself in a place of honor where the guys who were shoving their face, they weren't acting as, as an honorable person would. Um, I thought that was a little bit of a stretch. I didn't see that. Um, Maybe the most believable that I found was that those who were using their hands to scoop the water were kind of showing that they had some situational awareness, right? That they, were, they knew that they were in a hostile place. They knew that they had to keep their eyes up and their head on a swivel. They wanted to be able to see uh, the enemy coming and that those who stuck their faces in had forgotten that and maybe weren't as capable as the others. Um, that, that basically what they're saying is that first test, when the 22,000 left, that was a test of courage. This is a test of ability, right, or awareness in, in, in battle and in military matters. And so it's really funny. I'm, I'm digging in. I'm reading probably way too much about such a small detail. And then I, I get to the bottom of a, of a scholarly commentary, and it concludes this. It says, The means by which Yahweh identifies the men through whom he will achieve the victory may have been purely arbitrary. <laughs> and I thought, Awesome. Awesome. So there you go. Uh, there may be a reason, but it might just be totally random in the way that God did it. So I don't have a good answer for you there, and I wasted too much time. So, but he does use that system, and that narrows it down way more. They're now down to 300 men, and it's the night before the battle. And I want us to put ourselves in his shoes Right, it, it, it's, it's the night before, um, and, and we antagonize, or I, I've antagonized Gideon to some degree, but here I feel some pretty serious sympathy, that he's feeling scared, he's, he's got to be feeling alone. He has pulled all of these men out here, sent most of them, them home into their tents, but now he's asking 300 of them to go up against this vast and powerful army. We all know what it's like the, the night before you have to do something intimidating, right? If it's a, a job interview of a job that you just have to have or, or a conversation with a friend or a family member that may go poorly. It's not an easy conversation. Um, if you're awaiting test results for yourself or for a loved one, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of anxiety in that moment. And so when we put ourselves in, in Gideon's shoes that, that night, we can understand just how great what happens next is. How, how very incredible it is what God does for him next. Without asking for it this time, God is going to give him a sign. And he's going to calm his fears. He gives him a small task. Essentially, he tells him to take a friend. I know you're going to be scared. Take a friend with you and sneak into the enemy camp. And he hears uh, a few of the men talking, and they're, they're describing a dream. One, one man is describing the dream. Uh, the other man is kind of interpreting it. Dreams were really the most common way that God 
uh, speaks to non-Israelites. That, that's almost how it always happens. There's one or two exceptions. Um, but, but that was pretty much just There are lots of examples of Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar being spoken to in dreams. And in fact, some Israelites even saw that as a lower form of communication. Because when he communicates with the Israelites, typically it's through more direct revelation, like a prophet or, of course, his, his direct voice and actually appearing and speaking directly to them. And this dream, again, is kind of random and, and kind of odd. And having learned my lesson, I didn't spend as much time trying to figure out why it was bread um, that, that crushed the Midianites. Um, I don't know why he used bread as a symbol. Um, maybe because that makes about as much sense as Gideon being the one who, uh, who crushed them. But the message between the two men is very clear. They're going to lose tomorrow. These guys are scared. And that had to be a crazy understanding, a revelation for Gideon because he was the one who was scared. He was was almost certain they were going to lose. And yet he hears that they're the ones that are afraid, that they've actually heard of him. They they knew Gideon's name. They knew that his God was coming and they were going to lose. And so when he hears that, it finally clicks, right? It took hearing it from Midianites for him to finally understand in his heart what, what, he had, what he had been trying and wrestling with all along. These, these non-believers had the knowledge in full that he was struggling so much to have and to grasp. It had been a long journey to get Gideon all the way to that point. But now, as, as we're going to see, at least for a time, he's got full faith that he's going to have victory in the Lord. He finally seems to understand it. And God has moved in him a way that his heart can no longer deny. And so everything changes from that scene until, until uh, verse 3 of chapter 8. Gideon becomes essentially a, a new man. He immediately, the first step, is he worships God. Okay, one of the, one of the few good decisions we first meet, you know, we've seen him, him take. He worships God. He falls to his knees praising him for the victory and for the assurance of the victory. And then he moves forward with that knowledge towards the goal that God had set out for him. He's no longer afraid. And he passes on that encouragement to his men. And he, and he steps out and he's now going to be the leader that God knew he could be through him. And he does, well, the first thing he says is he does what every leader should do. He tells his men, keep your eyes on me. Watch what I do. Do what I'm about to do. He doesn't just tell them what to do and send them out. He boldly goes out and says, do what I do. Now, it's, it's pretty astounding that the men chose to listen and follow Gideon at this point. Because he does not say, everybody go grab a sword and a shield and let's go. In, in true Israelite fashion, he says, everybody grab a trumpet and everybody grab a torch and cover it up with a jar. Okay, that, again, we're making a whole lot of sense tactically here, but that's, that's what we're going to do. He tells them to do that. And in, in kind of Jericho fashion, they surround the camp, right? They're, the Midianites are all asleep. They don't know what's going on. They don't see them move into this position. They surround the camp, and at Gideon's example, they all begin to yell, uh, blow on the trumpets. They smash the jars so that their, their torches now are visible, and Imagine what it's like for the Midianites. They're, they're in the middle of a deep sleep, right? They're confused. They wake up and they hear all the screaming and yelling. It's, it's perfect psychological warfare. It makes them think 
what? That there are more guys there than there really are. All they see is torches all around. All they hear is big and loud noises all around. They assume they're toast, right? They assume that they are in trouble. They don't know it's only 300 guys out there. And that confusion and chaos and that horror that they're experiencing, God then uses that they, they begin to even turn their swords on one another. So that's, those are the two responses they have. They, they start to get confused and they turn their swords on one another. And then they take off. They're getting out of there because they, they think they've been beaten, uh, that they have been crushed. And so they, they run south. And so where they are, they weren't far from the Jordan. They were just on the west side of the Jordan. They, they, kinda, they come out of the valley and they turn south and they're running down that. Eventually the idea would be to get across the Jordan so that they can, that they can escape. So they're coming south. Well, Gideon knows he has some friends further south. And he, he basically calls them up says, Cut them off. He sends a messenger. He says, cut them off. And they do. They, they catch up with them. They, they kill many of them. They're able to capture and kill uh, two of the princes of Midian. And they take out a big portion of their army. Now we, now we know and see in chapter 8 that they didn't get all of them. That some of them do make it across the Jordan and get away. But without question, this is, this is a victory. right? This is a big win. The oppression has been pushed away. And so this, this part of the story... Um, it even ends with one more high point for Gideon. The, the men of, that he had sent to cut them off, they're kind of mad. They're like, why didn't you include us in the battle? And let's face it, they're probably only mad because it was victorious. I doubt they would have been offended if the battle had gone the other way. Right? This would not be a question. But they wanted to be a part of the victory. And Gideon uses some pretty serious wisdom here, and he flatters them. He says, what have I done? You guys did all the work. You're the ones who caught the, caught the princes. You're the ones who did the good things here. I, I, I'm thanking you guys for what you have done. And they, they fall for it, essentially. Uh, it works. And he eases, eases the tension because he was able to be, um, he was able to be humble. So this is, a, this is the high point for Gideon. This is him doing well. This is him trusting in the Lord, responding in faith, being a good leader, um, even, even using some, some wisdom and um, solid military tactics, uh, he does very well. Um, this is the part of Gideon's story that you, that you hear about in Hebrews 11. So when Hebrews 11 begins to list all the heroes of the faith, sometimes names pop up that you're like, why are they included in this, in this list? That doesn't make any sense. It's because they're referencing times and moments like this. No one listed in Hebrews 11 lives perfectly. Right? They all have sinful seasons of their life. And, and so for Gideon, when they reference him there, they're referencing this scene, this, this chapter. And so um, if his story would have ended there, it would have been a story about how great Gideon was. Right? We, we would speak and think well of Gideon. He had a moment of lacking faith, and then he got better. Unfortunately, the story does not end there. It continues on, and we will, uh, we'll have to save that for another day um, because, just because of time. So briefly, I want us to look, look back at this story and say, what do we see about God here? What can we learn from him um, besides the continuing themes that we talked about last week? So those don't go away. We still see evidence of um, God's glory being most important to him. In fact, he explicitly says that when he's sending the, when he's sending the men away and, and decreasing, shrinking the army. Um, but we do see a few things that, 
that stand out in this story uh, about God and his, and his character here. And the first one is that God promises his people victory. Excuse me, victory. God promises his people victory. Um, we, we've agreed that the, the people of Israel did not at all deserve to be rescued from this situation. Right? They were involved in idolatry. It had been brought on as a consequence of their own actions. But he chooses to deliver them. He gives them a promise, and then he follows through on that promise. This is a story, this is a picture for all believers. It is a reminder that we have a God who fulfills his promises. That while we don't deserve it, we've been promised victory. And it's been confirmed for us over and over. This story is a confirmation to us that God fulfills his promises. For us, it's not over a foreign nation or a tribe. It's over sin. It's victory over death. And a few passages I want us to look at. 2 Corinthians uh, 2.14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So here we see Paul is promising the church at Corinth that even in the midst of what feels like defeat, what feels like being bound in sin and captured and fighting a losing battle, that we can trust that one day we will be led in a triumphal procession. Right? He's drawing up images of Roman generals coming back from war, coming back from battle. As they come back into Rome, there is a parade throne where they are celebrated, that they're no longer in a foreign land, that they have come home, and they have come home victorious. What we're seeing is that those who remain in Christ will be like the ones in that parade, that Christ will lead us in, in triumphal fashion. That's a promise that he's willing to make to us, not, not someone in a faraway land at a faraway time, but also to us. The next passage is Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we are promised the ability to stand before a judge who previously had every intention and justification to destroy us for our unholiness. But Christ. But because of what Christ has done, that when we approach the judgment one day, we get to do so in confidence. Not in pride, not, not like we're going to bring something there, but in confidence. That, that's an astounding truth for the Christian, that we can walk up to the judge and have confidence because of what Christ has done. That's a promise that he has made to us, to those of us who would remain in the faith. And then the last example, there are many others, but the last one I have for us is Revelation 3, 5. Jesus is promising the faithful in Sardis. He says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
Understand that, that Jesus, who was there at the creation of the universe, has enabled us to be sustained to the end, as we see in, in Jude 24 and 25 and, and elsewhere. He will speak your name before his Father and the angels. We will have communion with him. We will be clothed in, in robes that are free from the stain of sin. That's a promise that he is willing to make us. And because we see him keep his promise with Gideon and countless other times, we know that that promise is true and one we can put our faith in. The second thing that we see about God is that he is exceedingly merciful to us because we are Gideon, right? We, we often do things that prove that we do not trust God and we don't trust that he will follow through on those promises and yet he is merciful and still works through us, right? That time and time again, we do the annoying things that Gideon did and yet he still comforts us, right? Gideon knows that what he's doing is wrong and, and what he's asking of God is annoying, right? He says, don't get mad at me, but I'm going to ask you to do this again. The fact that, that you did exactly what I asked you to do last time um, is not enough. I need you to do it again. And there's no rebuke from God. There is mercy, and he does it again. In this story, we, we tend to focus on, on two particular scenes that you hear of most of the time. You hear the scene of, of the fleece, and then you hear the scene of the battle, right, the, the, the torches and the jars and things like that. Um, but, but for me, the part that I resonate most with is that night before, right, that, that scene that, that really screams God's mercy to me that, because we've all been in that place. We have all been in that dark night where our, where our head and our heart begin to just swirl around in doubt and frustration and fear and, and anxiety I mean, for, for Christians, anxiety and stress, that's the, that's the default for us at times, right? Because we're, of all the things that we try to do. And even though Christians have no reason to fear, we have, we have no reason to be concerned about the outcome, God assures us. What does he do here? He assures Gideon one more time and in an effective way, in a way that finally clicks for Gideon. That's, that's real mercy, we are, we are children who are afraid of what is in the closet. And he is a loving father who is patient and merciful enough with us that he will remind us that we actually have nothing to fear. He comforts us when we're in the dark, unsure of what's next, because he is merciful. So what is our response? Very, very briefly, I just want to talk about a couple of responses that we can, we can have as we look at these truths. What does our faith look like? We, we talked about that last week, and I talked about how faith is something that, that is evidenced in our works, right, in our, in our faithfulness um, to God, even regardless of how we feel. And this is a, this is a different part of our, our faith. It's our mental approach of resting in the promises of God. So not just having knowledge of them, but, but actually finding comfort in them, resting in them. Like I said, stress and anxiety, that's a that's, those are prevailing emotions in, in the modern Christian. We get overwhelmed by all of the things that we, we want to do, and we get overwhelmed by all the things that we can't do, um, and it just weighs on us. Several years ago, um, I had a chance to hear John MacArthur preach a sermon 
Um, and the, the title, I, I'll always remember the title, is called The Theology of Sleep. And, and in it, he was not downplaying urgency. And he was not downplaying uh, hard work and, and really, you know, getting after it. Uh, he wasn't saying that we should just sit back and, well, quite honestly, he wasn't saying we should sleep um, because we trust God. But, but what he was saying is that if we don't trust God, right, if we don't trust in his sovereignty uh, to save the lost, to establish and keep his promises with us, we probably won't get a lot of sleep, right? Because if it's left to us, it, it won't happen. Um, but the person who knows the end of the story, like we know, we don't have to lie awake at night unsure of what's going to happen. We know that we have victory, right? We already know the outcome. We have no need for anxiety. And I'm not saying that's something that's easy uh, I, I know that that's a hard thing to overcome. And so what do we do? We pursue the things that remind us of the victory, that remind us of what God has done. And so that's my, my question, my challenge to you on, on this is, are you living as one who has victory, who already has been given victory by Christ? If, if not, what is keeping you from that? Are you surrounding yourself with the things that remind you of that victory. And then the, the last thing, very briefly, being in a constant state of worship for what God has done for us. When Gideon is, is finally reassured and comforted, what is his first response? 7.15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He worships God. He is grateful. He is thankful to him. He recognizes who God is, right? And that took some time. It took him a while to get to that point. But he recognizes who God is and what he has done. And then in response, he worships him because he recognizes he is worthy of his worship. When the Lord provides for us, when he comes through on those promises, is that our first response to worship him? Or do we simply count ourselves lucky? Do we, do we get overly involved with the gift that's been given to us and we forget about the giver? Are we giving God all the praise and glory? Are we in a constant state of worship? And so ask yourself, what, what keeps you from recognizing those opportunities to worship? What do you need to remove to stop distracting you in that regard? And then, of course, what can you be putting into your life that helps you grow in your gratitude and your understanding of that need? And so those are the two things I would challenge you with um, tonight. Pursue rest, comfort in the promises of the Lord, and look for every opportunity that you have to worship uh, and show your gratitude and your praise of him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for a record of um, the story of your people, both the good and the bad. I pray that we would learn from it, we would see ourselves in it, but most importantly, I pray that we would see you in it, and we would see how you interact with your people um, and, and who you are and your character. God, I pray that we would honor you and worship you as a result of your truth and what you have done for us. I pray that we would go out from here, not as people who live in fear, not as people who live in anxiety, but people who have been given victory and that we would act accordingly. God, we love you. We thank you for your son and what he has done for us on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.